Good afternoon. It's uh, Friday the 13th of January 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio, as usual for Friday, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Good to be with you, Mike. Um, and uh, well, let's uh, get straight on. Uh, well, here's Rishi. He was giving his uh, address to the nation uh, on Wednesday evening with the double cross there, of course. But the other thing that he was doing on Wednesday uh, was giving Andrew Bridgen a very hard time in the uh, House of Commons. Uh, Andrew Bridgen has now issued a statement on the situation. We were discussing this on Wednesday. He's had the whip withdrawn uh, as from, uh, so he can't, as, as a member of the Parliamentary Conservative Party, so uh, he can't sit as a Conservative MP in the Commons because of his comments about uh, vaccines. Uh, let's have a listen to what Andrew Bridgen had to say, or at least a part of it, and I do recommend everybody listens to the full statement. Let's have a listen. I'm disappointed that the Chief Whip, Simon Hart, with the support of the Prime Minister, has chosen to suspend me as a member of the Conservative Parliamentary Party. My tweet of 11th of January was in no way anti-Semitic. Indeed, it alluded to the Holocaust being the most heinous crime against humanity in living memory. Of course, if anyone is genuinely offended by my use of such imagery, then I apologise for any offence caused. I wholeheartedly refute any suggestions that I am racist and currently I'm speaking to a legal team who will commence action against those who've led the calls suggesting that I am. Indeed, the Israeli doctor I quoted in my tweet has stated that there was nothing at all anti-Semitic about the statement. The fact that I have been suspended over this matter says much about the current state of our democracy, the right to free speech, and the apparent suspension of the scientific method of analysis of medicines being administered to billions of people. As I've consistently maintained, there are very reasonable questions to be asked about the safety and effectiveness of the experimental mRNA vaccines and the risks and benefits of these treatments. There are reasonable questions to ask of a government that is considering extending the use of these experimental vaccines to children as young as six months of age. These, ladies and gentlemen, are babies. There are reasonable questions about the side effects of mRNA vaccines, especially when we know categorically that the current risk of harm to most of the population, and especially young people from COVID-19, is minuscule. We have a government who indemnifies vaccine manufacturers from claims against the harms caused by their products, and a government who, it appears, actively look to remove MPs who raise questions about those harms. Okay, so that's about half uh, of the statement that he made, and as I say, I do recommend people uh, uh, look for that statement uh, and watch it in full. Uh, now, he did say there that he was going to be uh, seeking legal advice about some of the comments that were made about this, uh, the people who were driving the campaign against him. Uh, so who could that have been? Well, certainly the person who stood up and asked the question in Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday was this man, Matt Hancock. 
uh, because, of course, he has skin in the game. Patrick, he was uh, basically responsible for driving forward with the vaccine program in the first, first place. Now, uh, as some people online have mentioned, uh, the comments that he made uh, in the House of Commons would fall under parliamentary privilege, and so he wouldn't be able to be prosecuted for libel or whatever, or slander uh, for what he said in Parliament. But what he says on Twitter is a different thing. So uh, his tweet here says, the disgusting and dangerous anti-Semitic, anti-vax, anti-scientific conspiracy theories spouted by a sitting MP this morning are unacceptable and have absolutely no place in our society. Uh, he better be pretty sure that that statement is correct and accurate. Sure, but it's a big rich. It's a bit rich for Matt Hancock to be uh, calling anybody out for things that have no place in society. Uh, you know, so first of all, the fact that they're pulling the anti-Semitic card on this um, really tells you all you need to know. That's just a political tool. It's the same tool they use to take down Jeremy Corbyn and Chris Williamson and other sitting MPs, okay? It's an absolute disgrace that they would pull that card. Bridgen clearly did not make an anti-Semitic statement. And what does that term even mean? Can anybody actually define it? Apparently not. It's just a cheap shot that uh, politicians and the media and also certain lobbies use in order to eliminate people um, or to put people in their box. In right. this case, the real culprit, of course, or the, the real problem for the establishment is the fact that Andrew Bridgen went after the vaccines directly and challenged this myth of safe and effective. Mm. And he used the term experimental as very important, okay? And we'll get to that and we'll show you why that's important in just a minute. But it is very important because it was a giant mass experiment. The clinical trials were a joke. They were non-existent. Everybody knows that. Everything has been done to protect Pfizer, to protect the pharmaceutical industry and the reputations of the politicians who were behind this debacle of a rollout. It was a disaster. It will go down history as one of the biggest crimes against humanity ever, especially in the modern era. Mm. Okay, well, let's, let's move on then to this. Well, this is where we're gonna go right now. And so let's talk about the vaccine rollout debacle. And notice how we use single quotes there, Mike. Yes. Because both of those things, uh, well, they're not quite what they seem. There's been a, a, a bit of a bombshell story that has per percolated on the Internet. And there's a, quite a few different researchers working on this right now. We're going to show you the work um, of a couple and then our interpretation of this. And essentially what we're going to show you is that everything you saw in the public in terms of regulation, in terms of safety, in terms of policy, uh, in terms of emergency use authorizations, it was all theater. Behind the scenes, you, this was rolled out and run under the banner of national security, okay? This was a military operation at its core, and that's where the legal liability shield comes up, and it's much stronger than the legal liability shield that we thought was there because right. of their emergency use authorization. It's literally a giant monolith a force field of liability protection because this was under the equivalent of war powers act okay so let's take a look at what we're uh seeing here so uh, uh, direct people to a couple of people who are kind of the, one of the first and most comprehensive people to to research this sasha ladapova and this is her substack here uh she's got an interview with laura logan which sums this up quite nicely um the department of defense ran the vaccine rollout that was Operation Warp Speed. And they have ownership over the contents of the vaccine, not Pfizer, not Moderna, 
not BioNTech, or these companies. And we'll show you how this was how this was divided and compartmentalized in order to create that super liability shield. So no, there's no accountability at all, mm. right down the supply chain on this. And here's the other researcher, Catherine Watt. Um, she's done an excellent breakdown here, again, on Substack. You can see uh, Bailiwick News is the name of her Substack blog. And you can go look at some of the details here. She's got documentation uh, and so forth. And this all came about because you remember we, the BMJ ran that story uh, in 2021, Brooke Jackson, the whistleblower. Right. Fr from the clinical research company that was doing the research on behalf of Pfizer. There were FOIA requests done as a result of that trial, and they showed uh, an anomaly of something like 400 contracts. Um, this is on the U.S. side, I believe, were OTA contracts, special military DOD contracts, which means that they, they don't fall on any congressional oversight, any government oversight, or anything like that. It, the, the FDA is not involved, okay? So everything you saw with the FDA, and we'll show you the EMA, and the MHRA was all theater, okay? But she, th this is how that began, and from those FOIA documents began the discovery of this legal framework. This is what we're describing here. This is a special military legal framework or protection. And so we'll look at a little bit closer here. Let's just explain this, just to put you into the frame here of what we're talking about. It's important, this is very complicated, so we'll try to boil it down here to some basic concepts. Okay, Operation Warp Speed, and the equivalent in the UK, and in the EU and other countries. What was that? That Donald Trump announced it. It was this lightning fast vaccine rollout. Who actually ran it? Actually, who ran it was the Department of Defense, the Pentagon, okay? This is documented. You'll be able to see this through all this research and also we'll show you more next week on this uh, as well. And this was under the purview of the National Security Council. That is the White House. That is the executive okay, uh, unitary executive in the U.S. government branch. Okay, so that's who was in charge of this, that's who was running it. So this was termed because it was a public health threat. It then comes under the equivalent of biowarfare or a bioterrorism remit. So this is a national security uh, uh, situation. Okay, so everything defaults back to that. So understand that, and then you, then you can translate what you're seeing. Now, this is the important agency here, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, BARDA. What is BARDA? You could describe BARDA as the DARPA of the HSS, the Department of Health and Human Services. And this is why we've structured this graphic this way. You can see the orange uh, uh, shield that separates these two things. Behind the shield is Operation Warp Speed. In front of the shield is the public vaccine rollout. We're calling it theater, okay? And so you public sees the Department of Human uh, Health and Human Services, the H HSS. They see the front of house. The back of house is military, okay? Understand this. And so th this is about a prototype countermeasures. The vaccine, so-called vaccine, was a prototype. Therefore, it does not fall under any regulations at all at the end of the day. You can challenge this all you want in court, and they have absolutely ironclad protection because it's done under a military banner, okay? So the vaccine was a prototype countermeasure in a war-type situation, a bio-threat situation. So this is why the framework is the way it is. So consider this orange shield that we put down the middle here. That's liability and accountability shield. That's what the U.S. government has, 
and we'll show you about the manufacturing side, which is even more interesting uh, in a minute here. And then this is also extra protection under the PREP Act. That's front of house legislation that uh, provides total legal immunity pretty much right up the supply chain. That means anybody from uh, manufacturing to pharmaceutical to distribution, even to administering the vaccines are pretty much protected because they're considered to be employees during this rollout of the Department of Defense in a wartime situation. So understand the framework here. So think about this, emergency use authorization, clinical trials, FDA approval, uh, safe and effective, and informed consent. All of these things were theater. They did not exist. Every single one of them. the clinical trials were theater. We know that. They rolled the product out during the clinical trials, which tells you all you need to know. We were told to accept that because it was an emergency. So we were given a total script um, on the front of house side, the theater side, and the back of house. Informed consent, informed consent was null and void. And I'll show you, this is a really interesting part about informed consent. The, the, the restrictions for this were loosened under the Obama administration. So when they passed the Cures Act in 2016, they really relaxed this. And other, a lot of organizations came out and warned about this even before this legislation, when they're planning this. And they even think there's uh, the, B, the BA, the British uh, uh, Journal of Medicine, the, or the BMJ. They warned about it in 2005. They said this could affect informed consent. We could show you other uh, research on that, okay? Mm -hmm. So th th that was loosened up. Okay, so here, let's look at BARDA here. And so if you want to see the proof in the pudding, there's BARDA. That's the DARPA of the HSS. So it's like the Pentagon has DARPA, the HSS has BARDA now, okay? So BARDA was under the command of the Department of Defense on this. And let's take a look at this. So let's look at their website here. This is interesting. Uh, if we just do a little search around this website here, and I'll just go to the uh, coronavirus response section here. We'll click on that. Let's take a look at what's in there. So they're really boasting about what a great job they did here. And so we'll go down there. Let's scroll down here, and we'll look at all the different things that they're in charge of. So testing and diagnostics. This is on the response dashboard here, COVID-19 partnerships. The one I'm interested in though is the one on the left-hand side, which is uh, emergency use authorizations for BARDA supported for SARS-CoV-2. Ah, and here we go. Let's look at these. These are all the EUAs. So this is basically all these different uh, products here. And you've got uh, diagnostics we're looking at, therapeutics. That would be very interesting to look at therapeutics, but let's look at vaccines. Let's look at vaccines. Here you go. So again, this is under BARDA. So you've got all of them. Moderna, you've got Sanofi, you've got Camaraderie, Janssen, Johnson Johnson, AstraZeneca, and Novavax. Okay, so they're all there. But let's take a look at Pfizer in particular here. Says it's licensed, not quite, but then you can see the details here of the size of, of the contracts, the amounts we're talking about, and you can get a clearer idea how this was all organized, okay? And here's the interesting part here. So the Trump administration, through the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Defense, will purchase an additional 100 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines from Pfizer. 
Department of Defense. It's in, it's baked into all of this. And a lot of people have missed this and kind of glossed over it, but this is exactly what it was. Now, while all this was going on, Trump was touting about the military. Do you remember that? In 2020, he said, we're going to use the military. And Trump says, and, and so the, the media were quick to jump on top of that and fact check Trump and say, oh, Donald Trump's exaggerating. The military's not involved. This is how the mainstream media came to the defense of the Pentagon on this. But actually, when you look at some of the other details of this particular story in New York Times at the time, this is uh, November 2020, right at the beginning when the vaccine thing was kind of the beginning of the rollout, they said that the military will be working behind the scenes, logistics, and they don't give you the full details, but now we know the full details. But scores of the Defense Department employees involved in the effort? Yeah. And just, just a little sub-headline, let's let that pass. Sure, yeah, scores of employees and scores of agencies. Score. So this is much bigger than the media let on at the time. And now, of course, now we know. And let's just take a look at this. This was the Army General in charge of Operation Warp Speed here. Uh, this is a Gustav Perna, and this is what he said at the time in 2020. This is a mission about defeating an enemy. We will defeat the enemy, says the general in charge of Operation Warp Speed. Now, now how does this affect the UK and Europe? Well, we have some evidence here. And again, I'm just scratching the surface here for you. Uh, this is trial site news. This was, I believe, uh, just in November, I think, this article here. So docs reveal FOIA uh, release here, major concerns with the Pfizer uh, batches. So the differentiation between batches, you remember that story? Okay, that would have never happened had it gone through proper uh, testing and uh, safety protocols and over the course of many years. But all the batches were different. It was a disaster. It was a mess. Some might argue that's the way it was intended to be. Mm -hmm. Some might or, or could say that this was just a disaster on its own. Either way, you're looking at a totally unregulated situation with no legal liability. Okay, so they have a, a carte blanche. So look at this. Here's the interesting bit here. Um, and this is uh, from an email that was FOIA'd. Uh, this was classified as confidential by the European Medicines Agency. Uh, we are speeding up as much as possible, but we also need to make sure that our scientific assessment is as robust as possible. Let's not forget the responsibility, accountability attached to the recommendation of the European Community Grant at the CMA. And we need uh, the uh, co-raps and the CHMP's support for achieving this. Without them, it will not happen. Well, none of this really happened. It, they just basically waved it through anyway. The European Medicines Agency's charter is specific, their mission is specific, that no untested or unregulated f products will be allowed on the European market, period. They broke their own, and you can see there were concerns yeah. within the organization. They broke all of their own mission and charters. So th th Europe is on the hook for a potential legal fallout on this. The United States has full, uh, um, unimpregnable uh, protection with the military, with the Pentagon, but the EU does not. So they were also, in this article, you also see there was chatter between the MHRA, the FDA in the US and the European Medicines Agency. And the FDA was more or less giving orders to the MHRA and the European Medical uh, Medicines Association. Okay, so that's in these FOIA documents. And we can look at those further maybe next week uh, if we have a little bit more time here. But just back to here. And so here's the important piece, the manufacturing. The, the military were responsible for the manufacture of the payload. Okay, what you see on the front of house here is just fill and finish, 
Okay, that's the assembly of the product, the marketing of the product, and the distribution of the product. And so HSS is managing information. What kind of information? Well, we found out, didn't we? Mm. They were managing Twitter. So <laughs> they were managing censorship. HSS was working with Twitter to censor people talking bad things about their operation and their product. So Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, all of that, kind of working on the front of house um, here. So they weren't, uh, they, they weren't, this is not their product. They don't own the payload. The, the Department of Defense owns the payload. Okay, so if you want to sue anybody, you're wasting your time with Pfizer and, and Moderna because they'll just have you running legal circles forever and go speak to the Pentagon. Is what, at the end of the day, that's what their lawyers would tell, would tell you. But what happened in the Brooke Jackson case is they just dismissed it because Pfizer is, is powerful and they have the U.S. government behind them. Right. So the, the level of corruption here is unbelievable and we've never seen anything like it here. But look at Twitter. We found out. Just an example, the FBI paid Twitter off $3.5 million to censor. So for the censorship work that Twitter did for the U.S. government and the FBI, Twitter got paid millions for that to cover their, quote, costs. So they're taking orders from the government, probably, probably other governments too, not just the U.S. Right. They're taking orders from government, but they're saying pay us as well. So they made, they made money out of that, or at least they covered their costs. I mean, how corrupt is this not fascism? Completely. Okay, so Twitter, unbelievable. Getting paid off by the FBI to censor. You couldn't make it up, folks, but it, it's actually, this has actually happened. So, Mike, um, you know, we'll leave it there, but the important point here is that this, this wasn't an emergency use authorization. This was a military authorization on the U.S. side. And you, uh, we'll do more uh, research on the manufacturing, but most of the product was made in the U.S. and Canada and then bat the, the bulk was shipped to different facilities around the world, and then filled, finished, packaged, marketed, and then distributed. Okay, so um, th this makes it very difficult from a legal point of view to find out who you can take the task. Right. I, I really don't have any answers for that, but even the pe maybe people who are unqualified to be vaccinating, not being able to vaccinate properly, they might be liable on some level, yeah. but, the, but the governments have really done um, an incredible effort to shield themselves from any legal fallout on this. Right. Right. Well, uh, related uh, perhaps or perhaps not. Nonetheless, here's the BBC. Lisa Marie Presley, singer and daughter of Elvis Presley, dies age 54 uh, of cardiac arrest. Um, really, my point here is just the response in the mainstream press, uh, because uh, lots of people talking about the tragedy of it uh, and the, the, the various comments from colleagues and so on. Uh, but here's the independent anger as conspiracy theorists try to link Lisa Marie Presley death to vaccines. And they quote a fan apparently saying anyone attributing Lisa Marie Presley's dying to the COVID vaccine is an effing moron. Uh, well, nobody can make any comment about this at this stage because nobody knows anything. One fan wrote. They, yes. said, they cherry picked that quote off of Twitter. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Here's uh, Meow, uh, a sort of pseudo alternative site. Lisa Marie Presley's conspiracy theorists bizarrely blame COVID vaccine for Singer's death. Well, while it's too early to say what has happened here, because nobody actually knows even what her vaccine status is uh, or was, um, the idea that it's bizarre uh, to make any kind of comment on it is uh, bizarre, actually, uh, to make that headline. But, but nonetheless, 
Uh, this is this is a state we're in with with uh, as soon as anybody opens their mouths on certain topics, the mainstream press is right in there jumping down their throats. Yeah, and all trying to trying to get people cancelled and so forth. But Mike, how many times died suddenly? Eighteen year old dies on the football pitch. Sure. Yesterday, Air Force cadet, twenty one years old, died suddenly. Perfect health. MMA fighter, female, eighteen, star dies suddenly, mm. and it's just day after day after day after day. They're, they're in the thousands, okay? So for people to what, be inundated with these died suddenly stories on a daily basis, and then Lisa Marie Presley dies, and nobody has an explanation, how is it bizarre that people are going to maybe say, well, is it the vaccine? You know, it's it's not a crazy sort of jump to conclusion there. Right. So it's, but the media, you can see, are really panicking on this. Yes. They don't know what to do. We'll show you. They're, down in New Zealand, they're really panicking. Okay. That's for later on. Uh, let's uh, move back to the United States. And, uh, well, Mr. Biden seems to have had a little problem with documents. He seems to have forgotten where he's been leaving them. That's right. Uh, Joe's in a bit of trouble here. Um, there's a bit of karma here with the uh, FBI and the DOJ raid at Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago. And the, 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 the whole thing in August, Mike, before the midterm elections was that Trump was hoarding classi classified documents. And, but his, the FBI knew about it. They were speaking to his lawyers for months. It wasn't a surprise, but the media made a big sort of show and spectacle out of the raid. And it was really designed probably to hurt the Republicans in the midterms right. and to keep Trump maybe from you know, running for president in 2024. So here comes this story, and this is just baffling. So apparently when Biden was vice president under Barack Obama, he stole classified documents and hid them in his think tank called the Penn Biden Center for Global uh, Achievement or Global Excellence or something. And uh, the fact that Biden has a think tank, I had no idea. But anyway, the, and then the, the other one they found in his garage next to his car, okay? And so and these weren't just any classified documents. These were SCI documents, okay? Above top secret. These can only be viewed in a secure skiff or reading facility, not even allowed to be removed out or taken anywhere, much less home. Yeah. Okay, so Biden's in real kind of trouble here. I'm, I'm a bit puzzled as to why and how this was able to break. Yeah. And the Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel to deal with this. It could end up being, they might try to whitewash it, I don't know. But we're gonna show you a video clip. Joe Biden is really in hot water here and you can totally tell by his reaction. Let's take a look at this. Okay. Classified, classified material next to your Corvette. What were you thinking? Let me, uh, look, I'm going to get a chance to speak on all this, God willing, soon. But as I said earlier this week, people, and by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage. Okay? So it's not like you're sitting out in the street. So the but at any rate. was in a locked garage. Yes, as well as my Corvette. Um, but uh, as I said earlier this week, people know... I take classified documents and classified material seriously. I also said we're cooperating fully and completely with the Justice Department's review. As part of that process, my lawyers reviewed other places where documents in my, uh, of, from my time as vice president were stored and they finished the review last night. They discovered a small number of documents of classified markings and storage areas and file cabinets in my home and my, in my, my, my personal library. This was done in the case of the Biden Penn, this was done in the case of the Biden Penn Center, the Department of Justice, 
was immediately, as was done, the Department of Justice was immediately uh, uh, notified, and uh, the lawyers arranged for the Department of Justice to take possession of the document. So you're going to see, we're going to see all this unfold. I'm confident. Thank you very much. <laughs> wow. Have you ever, I mean, he's really panicking there. And his, his reaction, he attacks people who are asking just pretty straight up questions. He does not like the press challenging him. Okay. So Biden didn't mention in any of his, uh, his, his sort of explanation there that hey, he has no authority uh, to be hoarding class, classified documents. He was not the president. He might be the president now, but he wasn't the president then. And this raises all sorts of questions. Is there anything in there to do with Ukraine? Mm. This is the obvious question. You know, why would Biden be hiding classified documents in his home or his office? Did it have anything to do with his son, Hunter Biden, and his activities in Ukraine? And if any, if any of this re reaches any level of a scandal, th there will be calls for Joe Biden to resign, mm. to avoid impeachment. And we've been talking for a long time about when they're going to throw Joe under the bus. Right. Because he's clearly not compassmentous. He's not capable of running a country. Um, they, can't, they can't have him there next time there's a general election? No, I don't think so. And he might not survive that long uh, cognitively. Um, there's only so much uh, B12 shots and whatever they've, pills they've got him on to pep him up and the amount of plastic surgery that he needs on a sort of regular basis, it's not sustainable his age. Mm. So I don't know, so it, it, we, we're looking for this exit for Biden, the Biden off-ramp. This could be the Biden off-ramp. We'll see how fast this accelerates. If it is the Biden off-ramp, who's gonna replace Joe Biden? I don't think it's gonna be Kamala Harris. I just have a, 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 a feeling about that. So it could be a number of other potential options there. There'll be musical chairs if that happens, and right. it's going to get very interesting, and people are going to be—it's going to be wild. It'll be the equivalent of a real political circus. Yeah. You thought Donald Trump was wild? That you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to Ukraine then, and uh, well, we're going to kick off with the uh, the tank saga because the tank saga continues, uh, and it's continuing now because the Polish president. Well, first of all, there was this announcement about the UK sending ten ch challengers. Uh, is, is it a, an announcement or is it not? Uh, because uh, although Rishi Sunak has said to Ben Wallace that uh, Ben Wallace should work with partners in the coming weeks to go further and faster with our so support for Ukraine, including provision of tanks. In fact, there's been no formal announcement of it. Uh, there's expected to be an official announcement at the Ramstein, Ramstein meeting in Germany on the 20th of January. That's the third meeting of the Ukraine Defence Contact Group. But to this point, there has been no formal announcement from the UK about whether they're going to send tanks or not. But the Polish have. And so here is the Polish president, uh, Andrzej Duda. Uh, a company of Leopard tanks will be delivered to Ukraine as part of the efforts to build a coalition because, as you know, several formalities and approvals must be secured. But above all, we want this to be an international coalition, says Duda. Uh, he goes on to say, hopefully this company of tanks, along with other companies of tanks, Leopards and others uh, that will be donated by other countries, will soon make its way to Ukraine to help strengthen Ukraine's defences. So although he's quite definitive that Poland is sending these, there's still a lot of hopefully he's there and a lot of hope. It's still not quite sure. So uh, Ukraine must be wondering what the delay is. 
Um, How many tanks are we talking about here? Well, if the UK is providing 10 and Poland provides a few and, and the United States provides a few, maybe France and Germany. Well, okay. France doesn't have a Maybe Germany 50, 50 tanks, maybe? Maybe 50, maybe. 50 tanks. Well, that should turn the tide in the conflict, shouldn't it? 50 yes. tanks. Yes. Very good. Anyway, Duda was making that announcement uh, in Ukraine because he was in Ukraine yesterday uh, alongside uh, uh, the president of Lithuania and also, well, obviously, uh, Zelensky himself. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, well, anyway, this is a, a Polish uh, Polsky radio uh, website. Poland and France urge Germany to send Leopard tanks to Ukraine because Germany is basically saying no uh, at this point still. Uh, but France has got in on the act to try to persuade them to. So the subhead says the governments in Warsaw and Paris have been putting diplomatic pressure on Berlin to approve the re-export of German Leopard 2 battle tanks to help Ukraine fend off the Russian invasion and so on. Uh, the, in the meantime, in uh, Canada, uh, well, here he is, uh, Justin Trudeau. He has uh, decided to buy some surface air missiles from the United States and ship them off to Ukraine. <laughs> Excellent. So that's all good stuff. Uh, but the problem is, does the United States have anything to sell? Uh, because here's uh, military.com. Navy might have to choose between arming the service and aiding Ukraine due to ammo delays, officials say. So uh, in the real world where people are making a decision between whether they heat the house or feed themselves, uh, that's in the real world. In the military world, they're having to make this decision about whether to provide arms for their own use or whether to send them to Ukraine because apparently they can't do both. It's very sad. But since uh, there seems to be a shortage of modern weaponry for Ukraine, Turkey has decided to get rid of some of its stockpiles of illegal weaponry. Uh, and Turkey is sending Cold War era cluster bombs to Ukraine, according to FP. Uh, so this is what they say. And they found it very interesting, Patrick, that they're calling him a NATO ally. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Turkey's been a member of NATO since 1952 or so, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So a NATO, the NATO ally began sending... Oof. Yeah, began sending the first batches of so-called dual-purpose improved conventional munitions in November 2022, which were made during the Cold War era under a co-production agreement with the United States. <laughs> They're designed to destroy tanks by bursting into smaller submunitions, which can linger on the battlefield for years. And if they do not immediately explode, each round scatters about 88 bomblets. The U.S. is barred from exporting these under U.S. law because of the high dud rate. The key words there, Mike, um... Uh, if they if they explode, if they explode yeah. Cold War era yeah. cluster bombs, right. forty plus years old. Right. Um, There's no modern weaponry to send. We're get, we're really digging into the depths there. So Turkey's emptying out the back of its garage. Yes. And dumping it on Zelensky doesn't know if does anyone want to go out in the field, guys, and test the cluster bombs? Be my guest. Maybe you can get some of the foreign uh, legion volunteers to do that job. I'm sure Zelensky will have uh, some ideas of who can help with that one. Indeed. So very interesting. But in the meantime, in the United States, Patrick? Well, think about it. He has uh, made a big impression on Americans, especially politicians, not so much on the people. But House Republican has proposed putting a bust of <laughs> Zelensky inside the U.S. Congress. So a bronze bust of him, the guy in the T-shirt, he's got a sweatshirt there because it was a winter visit. But anyway, let's look at this, what's going on here. Can you believe it? I can't. Representative Joe Wilson of South Carolina, who's a Republican, believe it or not, uh, filed a resolution earlier this week directing the Fine Arts Board of the U.S. House of Representatives to 
obtain or a, um, do a commission of a bust of Mr. Zelensky uh, for display as you walk in to Congress next to George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, you have Zelensky. Because he's, after all, he's one of the founding fathers of our country. Well, he's not really, but apparently they're putting him in the frame with the founding fathers. This is really disgraceful, Mike. But let's take a look at the bust. Oh, for, and the board has uh, the authority over all works of art and historical objects displayed in the uh, wing of the Congress, the U.S. Capitol, and associated office buildings. So here's what it looks like. Well, this is the proposed sort of model here. It's kind of a mock-up there. You can see he's got the T-shirt on, right? He's got, and they could. Gap is Gap has expressed interest in sponsoring this project because of the T-shirt. So there's the House resolution there, uh, House Resolution 10, directing the Fine Arts Board to do a bust of Zelensky. I mean, come on, folks, really? And so everybody's kind of uh, taking swipes at this now. And this is the obvious takeaway. Five reasons to oppose a bust of Zelensky. Well, obviously, Ukraine is not the 51st state. Has anybody told Joe Biden that? I don't think so. There's a lot of people believe that it is. Nancy Pelosi does. MSNBC, CNN do as well. But no, it's, tr it's not true. Ukraine is not one of the U.S. states. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, next I wanted to come back to the U.K. and just uh, a pretty egregious piece of propaganda over with respect to Ukraine and, and particularly Russia. Um, so here is uh, the BBC. Uh, prepare to set sail on HMS Queen Elizabeth uh, as BBC Factual announces the warship tour of duty. Now, this was back in uh, early December that they announced this, uh, but uh, the first episode is due to be broadcast uh, on the 22nd of January. Um, so we have a little uh, video clip here uh, from the trailer for this, which just will give you an impression of whether it's worth watching or not. Have a look at this. They've got Russian fighters at six miles. Roger. There's three Russian aircraft in there. This is a coalition warship. Your actions appear to be threatening. Turn away immediately or I may take action against you. So there we go. Uh, I don't know what anybody thought of that, but uh, sheer propaganda. Did they have to use CGI to put the F thirty fives yes. on that aircraft carrier? Because it, it's a good question. Do they actually? Do we have a functioning? Well, apparently aircraft? Queen Elizabeth is functioning, but of course we should remind ourselves that uh, Prince Wales is not functioning uh, mm -hmm. and hasn't been since uh, September October last year. Is sitting in a dry dock. Uh, and will be until March, April this year. So six months of repairs on a brand new ship uh, t because, of course, this is the standard of engineering in the British military at the moment. Is that because it couldn't sail in warm waters? Uh, no, it was cold waters. It was, uh, off, it cold was, just, waters. It was leaving, leaving Portsmouth to head over to the United States for a diplomatic uh, uh, event. Uh, and unfortunately, the prop shaft seems to have uh, broken in some pretty mm -hmm. spectacular way. So six months of work to deal with that. Anyway, it was an impressive video by the BBC. Yes. Great six, for recruitment. Uh, Great I, for recruitment. I should point out there's six episodes of one hour each. Uh, so that's all to look forward to over the six weeks following the 22nd or whatever date that was that that's on. So there you go. Let's look forward to that. Uh, but we should also look forward to Miss Universe or Miss World or whatever it is. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, um, I, we just thought we'd show you this. I think this is from the Miss Universe pageant uh, in the United States. And um, 
Well, it speaks for itself. Let's take a look. Ukraine! This Warrior of Light costume symbolizes Ukraine's fight for freedom. The Warrior of Light protects her country like Archangel Michael, who is a guardian of soldiers and considered to be the patron of kids, the capital city. This Warrior of Light will help in their fight, Ukraine. So was that a man or a woman, Patrick? I think it was a woman, uh -huh. but uh, yeah, very Hunger Games-esque uh, in terms of the propaganda level there. So it's just ridiculous, isn't it? But, yes. But it, it is interesting to see it getting into this comical farce zone now um, that they have to sort of do stunts like this. I mean, it, it, the Ukraine's just going to eventually become a representation of an idea of some kind of a cause right. um, rather than um, you know anything that's remotely resembling reality in terms of the Western view of it. So yes. very interesting. Um, well, on Wednesday's news, we mentioned uh, the UK and Japan defense agreement. Uh, this was uh, taking place uh, after the news program on, on Wednesday, so we hadn't uh, seen exactly what was announced, but we preempted it slightly. Uh, fantastic symbolism on this graphic from number 10 here. First of all, the rising sun is above the city of London, uh, but the, uh, re the representation of the British flag inside the sun, therefore you, know, you can make what you, what you like out of that. Uh, here they are at the Tower of London, Rishi Sunak meeting the uh, President of, uh, Prime Minister of Japan, sorry. Uh, and this is what he had to say. Uh, in the past 12 months, we have written the next chapter of the relationship between the UK and Japan accelerating building and deepening our ties. Now, of course, uh, when was the last time we had this type of Anglo-Japanese uh, alliance, Patrick? It was about 100 years ago, I believe. Uh, and uh, well, of course, that was all about targeting Russia at that time. And that alliance was part and parcel of what led to, well, a few wars, including the First and Second World War. But anyway, that, that's uh, just by the way. Uh, so uh, just a reminder, this is uh, core of this agreement is this idea of reciprocal access. Uh, reciprocal access agreement means that uh, Japan and Britain can deploy troops to each other's countries as they see fit. And this, of course, is all about targeting China. But Japan is very busy at the moment. Uh, we, also, we already mentioned that they have similar reciprocal access agreements with uh, France and Australia, uh, but they're wanting to build these types of arrangements with others as well. So here's the Washington Post. Uh, U.S.-Japan set to announce shakeup of Marine Corps units to deter China. Uh, so, of course, this is uh, Okinawa, and, but they're, they're going to be redeployed and with a, very much a focus on China now. Uh, so, you know, this, this Japan bilateral agreements with many other countries, it's bringing them very close to, to NATO, really. Yeah, so this is a, a follow-on from what we uh, uh, initially discussed last Friday. We looked at the huge budget that right. Japan had allocated, and you look at the AUKUS agreements, uh, for nuclear assets uh, from Britain, from NATO, the United States, on, in Australia, up in Darwin. And then you look at the talk of expanding NATO into the Pacific region. Yep. And all of these things perfectly converge. And again, I, I want to remind people that uh, Shinzo Abe was 
assassinated mm -hmm. uh, in 2022, and uh, nobody really has any real explanation as to what the real motivation of that might be. It was a lone gunman, a lone extremist, but uh, this is a rewriting Japan, Japanese constitution post-World War II, sure. okay? They're not supposed to have a standing army, they're not supposed to be offensive. This is changing the whole framework of the uh, security um, agreements post-World War II globally, okay? So look at how Germany's being pushed to help militarize the conflict in Ukraine, mm. and look at how Japan is being pushed uh, to use as a sort of cudgel against China. Right. And you can see this is a recipe for potential disaster. Who's behind it? Who's driving it? Well, who else? Britain's the brains, America's the muscle. As usual, indeed. Okay, if you like what the UK column does and you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. You could pick something up at the UK column shop, uh, but you could also please share any material you find on the various platforms. Now, on Sunday this weekend, uh, apologies we didn't mention this uh, earlier in the week, uh, we have a special event. This was postponed from uh, before Christmas. Uh, education, not indoctrination, 2 p.m. on Sunday, ukcolumn.org slash live. If you're a member, get in the, the chat box as usual. Uh, but uh, a, a whole range of speakers uh, discussing the issue of uh, the types of education that's being pushed to our children these days. We say education, the term used uh, with a pinch of salt. Absolutely. In this case, uh, indoctrination, definitely. Yes, okay, let's move on to the online safety bill, which is, uh, they're still attempting to get this through. Uh, I have to say, there's, it's in a bit of a mess. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a particular way to get any consensus in the House of Commons. This is actually very good news. Uh, and I would encourage anybody that's campaigning on this issue to keep campaigning on this issue. But Rishi Sunak, it looks like, is uh, facing uh, a bit of a rebellion at the moment because um, the current legislation as currently drafted says that if, uh, if social media companies don't do enough to protect children, we're back onto this protect children narrative again, uh, that they could be, see massive fines and so on. Uh, but it could include prison sentences if they fail to sort of follow the, the guidelines with respect to reporting to Ofcom and so on. Uh, but so a group of MPs, I believe it's about 43, 44 of them, are currently pushing very hard to increase that uh, penalty, potential penalty of actual incarceration to, to uh, a much broader set of parameters. Now, Michelle Donlan, who of course is responsible for this bill, is saying that she's not ruling out any of these amendments uh, because she's been working very hard uh, and, uh, and so on. Uh, she went on to say that she's someone that always takes a very sensible approach to these things. Uh, and if it's a good idea, she'll look very seriously at it. Uh, well, okay. But the question then is, of course, uh, part of the problem for the, the sort of pro uh, censorship campaigners uh, is that the notion of legal but harmful uh, has been removed uh, from the bill. Now, do I think it's been removed permanently? No, uh, because there's a lot of pressure building, and I just want to give uh, one example of it, uh, and that's uh, this uh, Dave Rich, who's published this book, Everyday Hate, uh, and let's just have a look at uh, a quote from it, or because he's saying, when it comes to anti-Semitism, here we go again, Patrick, uh, conspiracy theories are the gateway to a whole set of anti-Jewish slanders that end ultimately with incitement to murder. As I write this, there's an ongoing political debate in the United Kingdom over whether online content formerly described as legal but harmful should be subject to regulation. 
I can think of no better example of legal but harmful material than the conspiracy theories about Jews, Zionists, Rothschilds, and all the other code words that swamp social media. So the pressure very much continuing to build to try to make it, many people are upset that uh, they perceive that the teeth have been pulled from the online safety bill. Uh, I don't agree that they, the teeth really have been pulled from it, but that's, that's what they're uh, arguing anyway. This is a typical, uh, you, you see people who like to centralize authority and power, they look for the most extreme example, and they say that social media is swamped with anti-Semitism. No, it's not. So, social media is not swamped with anti-Semitism. Right. It's swamped with a lot of other things, but not that. Mm. But they'll to pay, look for the most extreme examples and use that in order to uh, leverage that into political power and ultimately legislative or centralized government power. Okay, that's a really cheap uh, tactic, and it's it should be getting old for people by now. But you know, Mike, how long was it ago, not a year, that people like this? like that author, that article, and right. many other virtue signaling do-gooders and uh, morally superior people were telling people who weren't getting vaccinated, I hope you die. I hope you die of COVID. Do you want to start pick, cherry-picking tweets? Let's go look at Piers Morgan's Twitter account. Let's do a little audit there. What did Piers say? Uh, what about some of these other MPs that were a little bit, uh, you know, uh, enthusiastic on this issue of uh, slandering and uh, 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 insulting, quote, anti-vaxxers, okay? You cr they created an out-group to discriminate against. Right. They, and, that, that is, and that is the, and wanted to, they weren't allowed to work. They weren't allowed to buy food. They weren't allowed to leave their house. They weren't allowed to use the NHS. Mm -hmm. They didn't deserve healthcare because they, they didn't submit to vaccination, okay? That happened. Okay, all of this stuff he's talking about is going to lead to incitement for murder. Yeah. I, I don't know where to start. No, I know. Honestly, I know. The, 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 these people um, have no integrity at all in the arguments that they're making. And they, they're, they're trying to use the government to swing a heavy club to crush free speech. And uh, so many times governments are viewing free speech as, quote, potentially harmful, or in the case of Jacinda Ardern, in New Zealand, a weapon of war. Well, they're uh, viewing free speech as a weapon of war with full complicity of the mainstream media. So here's uh, a bit of interesting news. I think it's very positive. Uh, this is uh, Children's Health Defence. Uh, breaking landmark lawsuit slaps legacy media with antitrust First Amendment claims for censoring COVID-related content. Uh, so this is a lawsuit which has been filed by uh, Robert F. Kennedy on the 10th, uh, and uh, he is... Uh, going after what a group called the Trusted News Initiative. Now, what is the Trusted News Initiative? Well, before we get to that, uh, the lawsuit targets the Trusted News Initiative, a self-described industry partnership launched in March 2020 by several of the world's largest news organizations, including the BBC, the Associated Press, Reuters and the Washington Post, all of whom are named as defendants in the lawsuit. So we're going to be following this very closely. I hope it, it uh, makes progress. I'm just going to say uh, it... Uh, was launched before March 2020 by the BBC. It began with the BBC because they uh, initially uh, set up uh, a conference uh, called, called the Trusted News uh, Conference, and they, they uh, brought up all these other groups in to discuss this issue. Here's Tony Hall, uh, the, who was the chairman of the BBC at the time. This information and so-called fake news is a threat to us all. It is the worst 
uh, at its worst, it can prevent a serious threat to present a serious threat to democracy and even to people's lives. Uh, so this, they were talking about this new uh, industry collaboration to tackle dangerous misinformation, uh, and the, the date on that particular press release is September 2019. So uh, look, if you want to understand how we got to this point, I just I've kept mentioning it. I'll mention it again. Do have a look at this page on the UK Column website. Uh, it's labeled censored. It's ukcolumn.org/censored. There's a timeline on there which shows uh, the steps right up to the point of the online safety. Uh, bill effectively consultation happening uh, and actually the formation of the Trusted News Initiative. Have a look at that. But it, it, I'm just going to say it's a bit rich for anybody at the BBC to be uh, uh, theorizing that fake news could cost lives and could uh, upend democracy. I mean, it, it's a total exaggeration. It's hyperbole. It's ridiculous. The BBC themselves, the BBC themselves put out fake news that cost that led to mass murder in Iraq right? On the, on, on the back of fake news. So it's a bit rich for the BBC or any of these trusted news initiative members like the Washington Post, like the New York Times, like Reuters. They all push the fake news that led to millions of people, innocent people dying, okay, yeah. as a result of war. They did it in, in Iraq. They've done it in Syria. They've done it in Yemen. And the list goes on and on. So it's really just beyond the pale that they're trying to make this argument that some random people on Facebook or whatever are going to overthrow democracy and cause people to drop dead in the street and die because of fake news. I mean, seriously, these are the same people who are the biggest purveyors of fake news. Yeah, so just, just a quick correction. The, the uh, conference was called the Trusted News Summit, not the Trusted News Conference. Now, that took place in the summer of 2019. And the organizations involved in that, aside from the BBC, uh, were the European Broadcasting Union, Facebook, the Financial Times, First Draft, Google, The Hindu, The Wall Street Journal, AFP, CBC slash Radio Canada, Microsoft, Reuters, and the Reuters Institute for Study of Journalism. And they were also... Uh, although Twitter didn't attend, they were also consulting with Twitter at the time as well. Um, but look, a little bit of uh, friendly criticism here, because uh, here's the British Freedom Party who stand up for freedom and, and uh, anti-lockdown anti policies and so on. Uh, but they have put this petition up. Uh, and I, while I, on one hand, I sort of understand the sentiment, I, I totally disagree with uh, what they're doing here. So this petition is to remove uh, the Shemima Be Begum podcast from the BBC. Now, if we're going to stand for freedom and we're going to stand for freedom of speech, then it's incumbent on us all not to fall for these types of uh, uh, this type of campaign or this type of rhetoric. Because uh, we, what, no matter what we think about Shemima Begum, no matter what we think of what she did and ISIS and these kind of things, no matter what we think of what her role in Syria was, uh, if we are calling for one person to be uh, taken offline, then we've no right to uh, demand that we are not taken offline uh, ourselves. So, uh, you know, that this is a pretty difficult topic in this regard. It is difficult for some people. It's but if you're really standing on principle, then you shouldn't really be calling for uh, things to be taken off air or canceled, period. If it's that evil and that pernicious or that completely uh, left field, then let it stand and let people criticize it. 
let, let it stand up there as an example so we can pick it apart, deconstruct it, and criticize it. And if you want to spin that back on the BBC, that they're glorifying terrorism or anything like that, then, then do it. But when you start asking the state to censor, then you're giving them license to censor you as well. And there's a little bit of a thing called geopolitical literacy, which some people in the freedom movement need to understand. Shemima Begin, whatever she is, whatever she did, or whatever, she wasn't uh, a, a gun-wielding ISIS terrorist. Right. She was the wife of a gun-wielding ISIS terrorist who was, I guess, lured in for uh, as, as an ISIS bride. Okay, what about your own government that funded and armed Al-Qaeda, Al-Nusra, all of these ISIS-level uh, terrorists in Syria who have killed untold numbers of people, tortured, ruined lives, destroyed a whole country, funded by the U.S., funded by the British government. You know, what, what about that? Is there any outrage there? No, nobody wants to talk about that because that's too big of a target. We're not going to be able to get a win there. Let's go jump on uh, Shemima Begin. Right. That's an easy win. People, step back and look at what's going on here. Right. Now, the other as aspect of the Shemima Begin story, of course, is the aspect of citizenship. Uh, now, uh, I can't remember if she actually had her citizenship removed or whether there's just a threat to have her citizenship removed. She was a removed. dual citizen? Uh, was she a dual citizen? Don't know. She. They, I think they did re revoke her British citizenship. Right. So, But my point here is whether they did or not in that case, this is what's coming. And so I just remind everybody about the types of legislation that we've been talking about over the last couple of months. Um, so shutting down freedom of speech is top of the list there. If we look on this page, stripping citizenship, the Nationality and Borders Bill is coming uh, and that will allow, give the uh, UK government the statutory authority to remove people's citizenship at, will, at whim. Now, some people again may say in the case of Shemima Begum, that's absolutely appropriate. But what about the uh, case of Graham Phillips? Is it appropriate then? And so, you know, it becomes, as you say, Patrick, if you, if you take action in the case of one, then the chances are they're going to take action in the case of the other. Now, Graham Phillips hasn't done anything that I'm aware of uh, other than uh, report an, a narrative that the British government despises, and he's already under sanctions, and they're, they're going to work to take his, his, I have no doubt, to take his citizenship away at some point. Why, why do they despise what Graham Phillips was reporting? Because what he was reporting completely undercuts the narrative of the British state and British state-controlled media. So Graham Phillips, the, there could be a time, the, you remember how much hysteria there was? Sure. They're standing up in Parliament saying Graham Phillips needs to be, I think someone even called to have his citizenship removed. Was it not an MP or was it somebody? Yes, in, it was at a public meeting, that's right. It was a public yes. meeting. Okay, so this is going on. So, when, when, you know, the whole point of rights, the whole point of rights is to protect people you don't like. The whole point of free speech is that to, to protect speech you don't like. Mm. If you can't get your head around that concept, then you don't understand what democracy means anyway. Okay, so we, uh, we, we need to really um, take a deep breath and really understand what's going on because it is happening very, very fast right now. And some people are not really um, uh, keeping track of the progress of tyranny on this. Okay, and sticking with the sort of censorship issue, um, let's head back to New Zealand and a bit more on New Dawn. Sure, sure. So th th this was the story uh, that we uh, talked about, I think, did we mention this yes, last week? Yes, we did mention it last we week. We mentioned yeah. this last week. So this is developed, interesting um, how this developed. So Stuff is a media outlet in New Zealand, okay? And they called for uh, a New Dawn magazine to be removed 
uh, from, oh, it seems like what they did was they said that the magazine was stocking, uh, it, they, they said the magazine was being stocked by a leading news agent. This is the wow. equivalent of W.H. Smith or Waterstones, Whitcools down in, in New Zealand. And so they got this uh, Kate Hanna here. She's the head of the Disinformation Project that's run out of Auckland University. So you've got state-funded media, you've got public-funded disinformation experts who are basically saying, ah, there's a dangerous conspiracy theory. They're talking about the Christchurch shooting. Well, we did a little bit more digging on this. And uh, when you actually read the article, and, and here, was, here was the follow-up here, magazine peddling mosque attack conspiracy disappears from shelves. Yeah. They disappeared because the media was harassing the branches, the branch managers, and they were calling and they, they created a, a Twitter storm mm -hmm. on this and they tagged all of the distributors around the country. New Dawn's been on the shelf for decades, decades in New Zealand, okay? And now they're being pulled off the shelf and banned. Why? Because they said that it contained a dangerous conspiracy theory. And here's how far they went. Just to remind people, magazines sold at Wickles could get readers in legal trouble. So they claimed the disinformation project and stuff claimed that it contained uh, uh, instructions on how to find the live stream shooting, which is illegal to view in New Zealand. Well, when you actually go to read the article, and I explain it and break it down here in this piece here, when you actually go to read the article, it doesn't contain that information at all. Not even close. They lied. They lied, put it out in the media, got the brigading uh, to fire up on social media, attacked all the distributors and retailers, and boom, all the books were burned in 72 hours. Right. Okay, so it was all based on a lie. We've got all the details of it here. Ged Can, he's the senior reporter for Stuff, 23-year-old senior reporter. Yeah. Uh, and so we break it down here. It shows the brigading. So this article is it has got a lot of traction globally right now. And it's got all the sort of case, the evidence in here. And it shows also the funding. These, these media outlets got millions of dollars from the government for COVID public uh, health campaigns and to fight COVID misinformation. They're subsidized by the government. They weren't really, in my opinion, they, weren't, they used the false flag angle, the Christchurch shooting angle. Here, here's the article, Mike. It is, it's by T.J. Coles, who's an amazing researcher and a writer and academic for geopolitics, full stop. This is a very lightweight, short article. Everything's footnoted. No claims are made in here. Mm -hmm. it's, all, it's commenting on the many anomalies um, of that shooting, which all of these high-profile uh, terrorist attacks or shootings are going to have many anomalies that were not addressed in the Royal Commission report. Right. So just like the Kennedy assassination or anything, that's fair game as far as journalism goes. So why, why, why are we not allowed to even mention this in New Zealand? They use this, and they had, but they had to lie about it. Why? They probably didn't even read the article, Mike. The journalists didn't even bother to read the article. The disinformation project expert went on camera, said how terrible it was. The magazine's terrible. They probably didn't even read the article. It, it, it is, it, it's astounding. It really is astounding. So there's going to be, there's already a huge backlash um, against this media outlet. And a lot of people are starting to realize how dangerous this is, right. that they don't, they don't even need to tell the truth in order to get material banned. So they're not happy just to censor uh, digital uh, web articles and Wikipedia. They want to also go for print. They want to go for print because the censors can't get their hands on print. They can't cancel and delete print. Nice. And so here they've gone after it in New Zealand, nationwide ban, New Dawn magazine. 
I write for New Dawn magazine, have done for over 10 years. Uh, the editorial team there is amazing. You know, they're, they're absolutely on the front lines of free speech. So I 100% uh, will support them on this issue as well as the author here. And by the way, I will interview the author of the Christchurch uh, critique here. His name is TJ Coles. I will interview him this Sunday on the Sunday Wire live at 5.30 or 5 o'clock uh, p.m. UK time. So go to 21st Century Wire if you want to hear that discussion and we'll get some inside baseball. David Icke has also tweeted this uh, about this story. We'll look a little closer. David Icke unleashed here. <laughs> New Zealand fascist banned New Dawn magazine for telling the truth. The usual story in Schwab-owned Ardern's Nazi regime uh, where to be a, quote, journalist, uh, you must have your backbone deleted. <laughs> your balls cut off, and your brain connected to AI. Well, David's not leaving anything left to there. He's, he's put it all out on the table. Um, so pretty strong tweet there by Mr. Ike. Uh, I quite like that tweet, actually. But um, anyway, that's where that story is. Uh, we might have some updates on that. But um, a lot of uh, people in America, high-profile political folks and stuff like that, are starting to retweet this now and realize what a, an absolute uh, basket case New Zealand is. Uh, with the Ardern regime. Uh, well, speaking of uh, World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, uh, uh, Davos is starting on Monday. Uh, here it is, uh, World Economic Forum annual meeting. Uh, Cooperation in a Fragmented World is the title of this particular Davos. Uh, so it runs from Monday uh, the 16th to the 20th. Uh, the main day or the main action is on Tuesday, actually. But I just thought we'd have a look at a couple of the things that are going on. First of all, uh, philanthropy is a catalyst for protecting our planet, apparently. That's the best way. Uh, they've got a session on the defense of Europe. Uh, quiet quitting and the meaning of work. So we're questioning whether we need to go to work and so on. Uh, and, and so on. Uh, financial institu institutions uh, innovating under pressure. There's quite a bit of sort of digital currency stuff uh, in this particular conference. But the best thing is 11 o'clock, uh, this is European time on Tuesday. We get to hear from the fantastic Ursula von der Leyen. I'm quite sure that's going to be a spectacular speech. With Klaus Schwab. Yes, with Klaus Schwab. So yes. the, the, the dynamic duo, Ur be there. Ursula and Schwab. Yes, a couple of other interesting events. Uh, disrupting distrust. We were talking about uh, trust uh, in the media and so on. Uh, so this is all about dealing with the dust distrust that there is for the mainstream press. Uh, so they're going to try to work that one out. Uh, and they've got uh, representatives from the New York Times there. Uh, from MasterCard, uh, from, uh, well, Consumers International, from Edelman, uh, Edelman, That's sorry. PR, PR firm, yeah. Do you think they're going to have an epiphany and realize what's causing all this distrust in mainstream media? Uh, in a word, no. <laughs> no, no, they're not. Just how to disrupt the distrust. No. Nope. This is desperate. Uh, digital currencies, absolutely on the list. Here it is, tokenized economies coming alive. So we've got somebody from uh, Coindesk. Uh, we've got the ministry, uh, the uh, Minister of Transport and Communications of Finland, uh, Chairman of the Circle Internet Finda uh, Financial uh, Yield Guild Games, and uh, we've got a representative from uh, Bitcub uh, Capital Group Holdings Company Limited. So uh, this will all be about digital currencies and, and blockchain. It, and it's connected to the World Economic Forum's Digital Currency Governance Consortium. Yes. That's a group to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Uh, and finally, Oh, no, no, we've got two more. Uh, clear and present danger of disinformation. That's another session that will be going on uh, from uh, representatives from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, from uh, Internews, the New York Times again. 
And uh, Brian Stelter is a keynote speaker. Yes. You're kidding me. No. Wow. He got fired from CNN. He got fired from CNN, and he's a keynote speaker at the World Economic Forum's disinformation panel. You couldn't make it up. No, you couldn't. Uh, but the best for last, uh, because there's going to be a conversation with he Henry Kissinger on the historic perspectives of war. If they can keep him awake for an hour, it should be an interesting chat. Yes. So, uh, related, of course, uh, let's talk about the Green New Deal. Well, the Green New Deal, there's Greta there. It's one of my um, uh, special digital art masterpieces here. Uh, Greta, Greta is looking over, what's she looking at, Mike? She's looking at the uh, deindustrialization of the West. And she's pondering how this is going to be, well, as long as her neighborhood's not deindustrialized, but uh, uh, other people, other countries, other folks. So th this is an uh, entree to a great piece here. I highly recommend everybody go look at this, read it, and share it. Net zero will lead to the end of modern civilization, says a top scientist. So a top sort of, I believe, is a nuclear scientist. And this is by, uh, by Chris Morrison. And uh, some great quotes in here on The Daily Skeptic. And the, 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 the thrust of the argument is this, Mike. Why, why can't we use, increase nuclear energy and work on green energy over time? Why do we have to do a, a full stop and rush and create all of this disruption? Why can't we just in, uh, improve nuclear technology? And if, if hydrocarbons are a problem, you know, slow, gradually wean yourself off them over 20 or 30 years or 50 years or whatever, increase nuclear, and then also work on green tech. And down, he's saying down the line, it could balance out to a very nice equilibrium without having to cause absolute chaos and mayhem and hyperinflation and distortion in the energy markets and the pain and suffering that's going with this uh, shock therapy of the Green New Deal. We know the answer to that question. We do. But it's good that you have people like this, high qualified people making this argument mm. very soberly, very clearly. So go look at this piece. It's got some great takeaway quotes. Copy those on social media. Share them on your Facebook page and your Twitter. Uh, okay, let's uh, end then with a little bit of news on AI, Patrick, and uh, ChatGPT. No, I don't know if you covered ChatGPT. We GP. have not, no. You have. Okay, so this was a chatbot that was uh, released around Christmas. Yes. And this is incredible. Okay. It, it is becoming a real talking point in so many areas. You, you don't know the half of it, okay? So you can put anything, ask it anything, ask it to write anything, ask it to write the code for a full website, ask it to write a Shakespeare a sonnet uh, done in the style of the King James Bible, and it will do that, 5,000 words. And it'll take two, three, four seconds, okay? That's what this is. It's a super hyper open from OpenAI, funded by Elon Musk, okay? He's no longer on the board, but I think he was originally uh, behind this project, maybe still is. But um, so chat GPT. So here's the, here's the thing. We went to look at this today. I went to look at this, and so a little, Here's their website right here. I went there and it, guess what? Do you realize how popular this is? More people are accessing this website than anything else on the web right now. It's mm -hmm. down. So the AI is writing here, writing a guide to meditation about the status of chat GPT. <laughs> and then, it, it, then you go back in, in two, two minutes and it'll be writing a limerick about the status of chat GPT. It'll be writing a, here, just did a meditation there. And then after that, it wrote a Shakespeare sonnet. And it says, uh, thou art not alone in thy desire to engage with our esteemed AI chatbot. Many have flocked to our website in this hour. 
and we do our utmost to accommodate each and every one. So it, it's this is what it's doing. It, this is downtime. It's downtime, and then the AI is producing all of these different things. So you can't even get on it now. Everyone's using it. Businesses are using it. Gig economy people are using it to do work and reselling that work in marketing, sales, whatever. It'll do anything. This has the disruptive capability um, to, to, to completely transform um, society in, in, in a way that very few technologies have in a very rapid um, uh, pace as well, a short space of time. Hugely disruptive. Okay. I don't know if anything's coming in your head of what sort of things this can disrupt, but this is already becoming a problem for academia, for universities, college, high schools, kids not wanting to write their own stuff. This is already a problem now. Okay. So Google was bad enough. So it, now they, uh, Jeff Berwick from Anarchopoco, from his channel, he asked it to write a poem about, or someone asked it to write a poem about anti-vaxxers. And this is interesting here. We'll, we'll go ahead and listen to this. This is, this is extremely interesting. Someone asked it to write a poem for the unvaccinated. And here's what the chat GPT AI wrote. A vaccine to protest for all those who are in neglect, ignoring science and facts, leaving their health in the back. They refuse to get the shot, leaving their loved ones in knots, worrying about their fate as they hesitate. But they don't see the bigger picture, how their actions can create a, a fixture of illness and death for themselves and the rest. So please, for the sake of humanity, get the vaccine and let's end the insanity. For the good of us all, let's stand tall. So that's actually a pretty decent poem. It's probably better than what 99.9% .9 of people could write and definitely could write in like one second, which is the amount of time it takes. But notice it's basically just spewing the same lies and propaganda. Yeah, so it's well-trained then. So the algorithm is picking up all of the mainstream vaccine uh, rhetoric and all the discourse. Mm. And so the, the AI, the GPT chatbox machine, the, the, the big brain, is a reflection of all of the propaganda, the piles and piles and layers of propaganda that are on the web right now. It's synthesizing that. And then it's basically giving you that. So, And, and, and I, th I think that's, that, that fact is very interesting, Patrick, because that demonstrates in a sense its dumbness uh, because it's 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 only processing the information it's not actually thinking it's not actually uh, intelligent it's just processing it's just an algorithm running on data that is gathered and what it what it has been uh, shown on the on the main uh, well from the mainstream perhaps maybe they should rename it from chat gpt to chat npc because that's yes. what it sort of is, yeah. uh, AI sheep, AI sheep. Okay, look, we will have to leave it there for today. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes uh, for some extra, uh, but otherwise, if you're not a UK Call member and not watching extra, uh, join us 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. But of course, don't forget Sunday, the uh, Education Not Indoctrination event uh, starting at 2 p.m. Uh, on the UK Column website. I hope to see you there. Have a great weekend. See you soon.